0: Camp. You guys say you think of, when you think of me, you think of Allison and I, you think of camp. When I think of camp, I think of Sycamore Grove. I mean, you guys were in on the inception of us being a part of it. Um, that was a good while ago. And uh, it's been, it's absolutely been a huge part of our life. And so, um, thank you, therefore, you've been a huge part of our life. Kevin, I don't know if you remember that meeting, but it was in 1998 that you met with Allison and I to see if we wanted to be a part of this. And so, um, and, uh i don 't know if you were just canvassing kind of the neighborhood and ran into us or how you ended up with us, but thank God you did um, Camp this year just it 's in your announcements but it um We're going to start staff orientation a little bit earlier this year. We feel like we need to work on our staff a little harder. Um, One thing, there are a lot of young people in our staff. Um, You know, Our staff, when we first started, had been at camp longer than we had, way longer. And so they were kind of led us through. And now we're coming with the kids that were campers becoming, and actually their kids becoming our staff. And so um, we're we're going to spend a little more time on orientation and go back to the basics with orientation. uh, Camp is June 18th. Which is a Sunday through the twenty-third, which is a Friday, and so um, anyway, that and that, that schedule is not different. This year's theme is hope that brings joy, and joy that brings hope. Um, it's the the main the, the main verse is Proverbs ten twenty-eight, um, which says the hope of the righteous brings joy, and the idea is that there's great reason for hope, and 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 that hope in, that in Jesus Christ brings joy to your life. And as you express that joy and live that joy, you bring hope to others through whatever your calling is. And we're going to talk about that quite a bit today. John didn't give me a topic for today, speaking of today. Um, he, he said, uh, you know, whatever you want to do. And Dwayne called me early in the week asking what I was going to share on. And I said, oh, you don't know either. <laughs> Good. <laughs> and I can't wait to hear what I have to say. And, I, and, and I, I, I was being funny with them, and I was messing with them a little bit. And, um, but that's kind of how this works, right? It works that way at camp. There's a certain amount of spontaneity to it. Um, we're getting where we do a, a lot of preparation for camp as far as the theme goes, because we want to build the theme into the staff before camp starts. And as we do that, we do a lot of things ahead. We look a lot of Scripture up. We, we spend a lot of time praying over the theme and making the shirts and doing all the things. But there's a certain amount of spontaneity to it. Camp lessons for the day aren't really ready till the morning of, very early the morning of the given lesson. And I get up really early, and it never works any other way. It's been going on for a while. And I get up really early, way before Allison, way before the sun comes up, and I walk to the mess hall. And I walk to the mess hall's Beautiful time. I mean, it's just, the sun's not up yet. The whippoorwills are yelling early in the week. It sounds beautiful. Late in the week, you want to pinch their little heads off. But, uh, but they... Um, and, and we, we make all the preparation, we get the materials together, but each day I get up, and walk to the mess hall, I do my devotions, my daily devotions, because I want those done before I start on, on what God's going to say about the lesson. And then I listen to what God has to say about the lesson for that day. And usually, the, and my favorite campers, okay, I love all campers, but my favorite campers are fourth grade boys. Because fourth grade boys walk into everything at camp and they go, whoa, you know, no matter what they see, they go, whoa. So early one morning, I remember this a few years ago, um, you know, and I remember Seth Rushley as a little boy, so that he was a little only a little taller than me as a fourth grader. So I remember him <laughs> really well. Uh, but uh, but I, I'll sit there and I'll do my devotion. And I'll, I'll work through the theme and then it's usually a good hour, hour and a half before breakfast that I finish. And the the kids are coming back from the the morning walk. Joe Cooper started that. It's kind of a sadistic thing. They get up at 4.45 and go watch the sunrise. And the main participants are the fourth grade boys. They're there every morning, you know, and there will be other people tag along later because the fourth grade boys tell them how cool it is. So one morning, I'm I'm a good hour and a half before breakfast is ready, I've finished what I was going to do. God gave me my message. I got everything printed off. and, And I just put my head down on the table and went to sleep. And I mean not... I mean, a dreaming sound asleep. And the next thing I hear is, whoa, is he dead? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so here we are. There's a certain amount of spontaneity for this. The other thing God gives me in the morning before I give a lesson or give a devotion for the day is He gives me a way to bring the, the audience, the, the kids for, in this case and, and sermons I've been given at HCC some and a couple times here. He gives me a, a, an illustration or something I'll bring Bring you guys inside my mind a little bit before we get going, right? You need to know how Dave Cook thinks before we start. Now, Allison cringes when I start saying those words because she, sometimes she doesn't want you to know how I think maybe because she, knows, she she reads my mind better than you. But I'm going to give you a little bit. Um, the, so I have the sermon, um, you know, I've preached here before, but um, I'm going to give you a little step inside my mind. Uh, when I first came over to Kansas City, it was in uh, 1988, I came over to Kansas City and there was a popular comic strip just emerging in the, in the newspaper. Comics came in newspapers then. You, you kids know what newspapers are. They're printed internet stuff. Alright, and so the, the comics were in the, and in, 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 uh, one of my favorite ones at the time was Calvin and Hobbes. Um, and Calvin and Hobbes was, a, was the, the setting, it's by Bill Watterson. He's a great artist and a great comic. And he got um, comic writer. And he got inside the mind of this sixth-grade boy, or 60-year-old boy, and his name's Calvin, he's an, and he's a genius. But he's a really troublesome son to his parents and anybody in authority. He has a problem with authority, right? He's, but he's, he's very intelligent, he's very active, and he has an extremely active imagination. And the comic strip lives through his imagination. Now, what you see here is, is one, one thing about Calvin is he hates school. At school and, and so the, the artistry that, that Bill Watterson the artistic genius Bill Watterson looks at him in school. He, it's usually a dungeon situation with this alien ruler that's his teacher. His teacher's name is Miss Wormwood, and, and, and the thing. And, and there's very few adults named in this comic strip because it's all about Calvin and what he thinks of the world. And so, but the the the, the in the in the story is those of you who don't don't know is the stuffed tiger. That comes to life in Calvin's imagination when no adults are around or no one else is around. So, and the conversations they have are very philosophical. They could be biblical if you stretched them, but they're philosophical and they're about you know things in life. So this comic strip. So number one, Calvin hates school. He hates being told what to do, but he loves summer. He lives for summer and weekends. And so a lot of the comics are him trying to get everything he he can before Monday morning or before the end of summer. And so this is a summer morning. You can see his mother's not as wide awake as he is. But look at the story that's built in picture. I mean, the caption in this is just, the words in this are just a small part of it, right? She says, just once, I would like to see you banish this during the school year. And he's going out to face his day. You know it's early morning. There's a picture there, right, telling you exactly what's going to happen. We don't know exactly what he's going to do, but we know where he's going. So that's, um, that's Calvin and Hobbes, and that's my... My, my illustration for today to help you get inside my mind before we get into this scripture. So it, it seems not too big a stretch to say that in at least one area of our lives, at one point, we can, we can identify with Calvin's attitude. You know, I know those, and, and I've been in the, um, the industry I'm in for a long time, I know those who tolerate their job and live for their vacations and weekends. Right, they, and, and when they have a vacation or weekend, as that draws to a close, they almost kill themselves either financially or physically, trying to get in everything they can before they have to go back to work. Right, and um, you know if you think about um, at, in our church life. It seems we catch ourselves living on for the mountaintop experiences. We switch churches based on churches that have more mountaintop experience and more opportunities for them. Um, we p- choose ministries that, that will provide more mountaintop experiences. I remember Chris Meeks, um, the first, um, he and Gwen weren't even married the first year we did camp, but they were both counselors. And he says to me, he says, I wonder how we can figure out how to do this every day, you know, how to do what camp is every day. And, and I, I don't think we're made for that. Um, that'd kill me, for one thing, a um, long time ago. Um, but we miss, I think, a lot of the opportunities, a lot of the, 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 the God experiences that are here and now in, in our day-to-day, in our routine. What if I told you it was possible to achieve this exhilaration of God's presence in the day-to-day, in your job, in your church, your family life, and everything else. God has stated and has shown that this is not only possible, but this is actually His plan for you. See, we've got to go back to the beginning. When God created man, He gave us everything we needed and desired to walk in perfect fellowship with Him in every aspect of our life. And then sin came into the world and separated us and messed the whole thing up. So enter the law. The Ten Commandments, the temple and the priests, all those things were set up for us to know what God is like and be able to mediate and deal with sin, to keep sin out of His presence, but allow us a way to get into His presence. The law showed us God's standard, but it also made it clear that we can't attain that standard on our own. The temple and the priests were set up to mediate God's presence to us. And they told us what the law, and the law told us what God is like. The law showed us God's standard. Oh, I already did that. The temple, I'm not a professional preacher. Um, temple and the priests set up, are set up to mediate, mediate God's presence to us, and the, and the whole sacrifice system was set up to mediate God's presence to us, and to atone for our sin. Right? Atoning for sin had to keep happening, because sin kept happening, and there was no permanent solution for it. There are two drivers of sacrifice. One was to atone for sin without, and then for that you needed a spotless lamb without blemish, right? You needed something spotless, you needed a perfect. Thing to atone to sacrifice for the sin to atone for sin and that had to be done repeated like, like I said because sin went on repeatedly. The second one was to bring up an offering to to him that that of something that he blessed you with. If he blessed you with a harvest, you brought forth part, part of the, the first fruits of the grain or the the fruit of the of the orchard of the vine or whatever it was. Um, or was it a livestock animal? You, you brought forth the the, the prize the, the first of that the first um as a as a offering and and this was a representation of you offering up God's blessing back to Him and you destroyed it on the altar and that raised a sacrifice up to God. It brought it from being an earthly thing to being a thing that's consecrated or heavenly. and it's This really all pointed toward the Messiah. Both forms of sacrifice pointed toward Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ came, He would be the perfect lamb sacrifice to atone for our sin. He would release the grip of sin on us, or the penalty of sin on us. It also is to mediate the God's presence to the rest of the world. Then Jesus came, and he, he was in the sense, He was the presence of God with us. He was God Emmanuel, which is, which is God, God with us, is what that means. And this was perfectly, it was exactly how it was prophesied, but it was completely different than what everybody expected. We read into the prophecies too much, maybe. It showed us God's. Jesus showed us God's power through the miracles over sin, disease, death, and wealth. The whole world. I mean, you guys are watching the Chosen series together. That's a tremendous way to see God's power because they, they they depict those the the miracles really well and the impact those have on the people. Not only the people that are receiving the miracle, the healing or whatever it is, but everybody around that witnesses it. Those on Jesus' side and those not. It also showed us what God is like. Merciful, loving, powerful, uncompromising, full of grace. This fulfilled the prophecy of the law and expanded on the law. If you think about it, the law was perfectly presented in Jesus Christ, was perfectly fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, but he also expanded on it, right? He, remember in uh, Matthew 5, when he's preaching, he says, "He says, uh, he says, says the law says this, but I say this. And so he expands on the law. He says, this law is not enough. Number one, you can't attain to it anyway. And number two, I even mean, if you could, it's not enough. Because the law has got to be in your heart. And the only way to do that is through the gospel. He gave us the gospel, the good news, and he showed us how to share it. He told us of the coming kingdom, the new heaven and new earth, but also that his kingdom is here and now, though often interrupted and marred by a fallen world. But through the gospel, we can live in the kingdom now as ambassadors, as adopted royalty, and play, play a role in expanding the kingdom, as Adam and Eve were supposed to do. As he told us about his kingdom, he used parables. And a parable is a story alongside the truth of the gospel. If you think of my Calvin and Hobbes illustration, the 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 story is 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 built into the picture right it's alongside the truth of what his mother was saying at the time you know the whole truth the whole story is in the picture and that's kind of what a parable is it's a picture of what the truth is and then it ties it to the gospel puts it alongside the gospel um this week i'd like to look at the parable of the talents in matthew 25 Fourteen through thirty. If you have your Bibles, please look that up. I do not put the whole scripture up on the screen. Um, that way, I'd um, i like, like you to look in your Bibles. Um, I use the English Standard Version. Before we look at actual the actual text of the, of this sermon of, of this um, of this parable, let's look at the context of it and look at who Jesus was speaking to. Um, so, in, in Matthew twenty-one and twenty-two we had the triumphal entry right when jesus came in and uh, we celebrate on palm sunday then as followed by the cleansing of the temple and then in the temple he went through some parables and as usual the person or group he was speaking to was there in the crowd was there represented in this case it was the pharisees and sadducées he told the story of the two sons the parable of the two sons the tenants and the wedding feast then in chapter 23 he's still speaking to the pharisees and sadducées But he's not speaking in parables anymore. He's directly confronting them. He's saying, Woe to you, blind guides, whitewashed tombs. He's almost name-calling, right? He's calling them out. Then in chapter 4, he leaves the temple, probably... Part by choice, but part because they were probably encouraging him to. He left the temple with the disciples, and then he starts focusing on the second coming. And again, he's not talking in parables yet. He's, he's using the, uh, the temple, the, the temple that will be torn down and built up in three days. He's using that as more of an analogy than a parable. I could go into the differences in those, but I don't completely understand it, so I won't. Uh, the parable, so then, then he starts talking in parables again later in chapter 25. And these parables are going to the disciples themselves. It's to teach them. It's not to make them feel guilty, it's to teach them. Whenever Jesus teaches the disciples, he's teaching you. Okay, he's teaching me and you. And so this is what he's doing here with the parables that come in chapter twenty five. And chapter twenty five starts with the parable of the foolish virgins, and then our parable today. Would you read it, follow along with me as I read it? Um, it's fourteen through twenty five. Enter into the joy of your master. And he who also had two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also... I just messed up, didn't I? No, I'm good. And he who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master... I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what's yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. At my coming, I should have received what was mine with my own interest. The message states that, if you would if you knew i was after the best why did you do least than the least less than the least back in verse 28 so take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents for everyone who has has will who has more will be given and he who has a, will have an abundance but for the one who has not even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So before we get into what that all means, let's look at who's who in this. Um, for it is the kingdom. For it will be like that. Whenever a lot of times when Jesus talks about the kingdom, he talks in parables. It will be like the kingdom is like. So it is like the kingdom. It, it'll be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Clearly, the man is the master, Jesus Christ. He's getting ready to go away, and this is pre-resurrection but only by a few days so it's that certainly he's getting ready to go away he's referring to himself he's going to be crucified resurrected and ascend and i don't think the coming back means when he gets sent when he comes, when he is resurrected i think the coming back means when he ascends and comes back another time um, in the future he's over his servants his servants are the disciples or if you would rather you the church and servants in that day were indentured. They were working off a debt. They were either working off a debt, or they, um, someone in their family had sold them into the the situation. It, basically they were not just slaves that were just bought. They were they were in servants working off a, den, a, a debt. A talent. Now when you think about this, because this is pretty important, a talent then is is the, the the Greek word for talent, or the Hebrew word for talent, is a weight of measure. It means, it means a weight of something. It's what something weighs. It would be like us saying a ton or something like that. A talent is a weight measurement, and it's usually referring to currency. And it's a valuable amount of currency. A, a talent is a lot of a currency. If it was gold, it'd be 35 years' income for middle class. In our time, it'd be about a million and a half dollars, would be one talent of gold. A servant could never earn or deserve or would ever see one talent in his lifetime. So when the master bestowed the talents to them, it was not theirs, nor did the, the, they, they couldn't earn it and they didn't earn it. Two things they clearly should not have done were to use it for their own benefit or hoard or waste it. He had received the five talents went at once and traded them. So it's not the correct, it's not incorrect in a lot of sermons and articles and blogs. Go just a little beneath the service and present your talents. In this case, are your gifts. They're what God's given you to do. Um, and it, you know, your talents, your spiritual gifts, or your actual finances, or maybe even both. And the natural follow is to not waste those or or, um, or don't sit on them. You know, to, you remember the, we learned this very early on in church. Hide it under a bushel. No, <laughs> you know, it's, it's talking about that. It's, it's talking about getting it out the open. Use it for God, right? And then we set out to define which gifts we have and which programs we should give our money to. And this isn't wrong, but I don't think it's, I think if we go beneath the surface, could there be more here? What if the message of the talent should be we should make the most of every aspect of our life where God has blessed us? And that's where I'd like to go today. So let's look at a couple areas where God blesses us. The first one is pretty apparent by this. It's referring to money and wealth. And I want to tell you right now, this isn't a sermon on tithing. Um, but it's a parable based on money. The parable based on money and currency. The value they're talking about is financial value. And another but is, is that Jesus talks about money a lot. And I don't think that's because He cares. I mean, it's not because He needs our money. I think it's because He knows what, how money can be a trap to us, how wealth can be a trap to us. I think it, um, it, if, if you want to know what drives a person, look what they do or don't spend their money on. You know, and you've heard it be said before. You want to know what a person's values are, look at their checkbook. You know, and so I've not. that's why the husband doesn't let me look at ours. So, um, But then God's Word is full of warnings, you know, on this. If you look at Hebrews 13.5, Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. It's me that matters. Put your energy in me. I'm eternal. The things of this world are not. 1 Timothy 6:10 says for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving, don't say money is a root of all kinds of evils, says the money the love of money is all kinds of. Evil. Some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And then Proverbs 13:11, this is a truth that shows up. This is kind of extra, um but Proverbs 13:11 says wealth gained hastily will dwindle. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle. But whoever gathers little by little will increase it. I don't know if you've ever seen any of the uh, documentaries about someone who's families that have won the lottery and achieved great wealth and within a few years they're more poor than they were before and their life's in ruins. Or someone inherits a bunch of money that they didn't expect or they expected it and didn't, you know, and and it looks at, instant wealth is, is destructive to people because of these things. It's a trap for them and it's okay to be expect to be paid justly for your skills and your occupation it's fine fine to aspire to have a comfortable reliable reliable vehicle to drive that fits your lifestyle but with salary possessions social status we start to lose the godly perspective when we compare right i'll give you two examples and these are free um, first one is salary i several times in my career been perfectly satisfied with my salary till i find out what someone that's close to me a little bit over me, or even under me, makes. And all of a sudden now, my salary, you know, I'm I'm disgruntled about what I make. My other one is really materialistic. Um, Back in 2014, I bought a a slightly used uh, 13 F-150 Lariat. And it paid way more than I should have, paid for it way longer than I should have, but suddenly it's mine. And, and and you know we not suddenly, <laughs> gradually it's ours and uh, we paid it off and uh, and immediately my son took it to college. But anyway, that's that, that's different. But here's the thing: is that I was perfectly happy with that. I mean, and now it's, it's 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 still I still have it. It's got you know three hundred thousand miles on it. I'm perfectly happy. It's everything I need in a truck. It's got heated seats, comfortable to drive, put stuff in it when I need to. I was completely happy with that until I went to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania rented a National Rent-A-Car car, car, and they let us pick our cars because we rent so many from them. And I got a 2022 F-150 Platinum with 600 miles on it. Heated, cooled seats. I mean, it was like sitting in your living room chair driving down the road. Suddenly, my truck wasn't good enough anymore, right? So, until I saw what those cost. All right, so, another area, God bless us, is our Spiritual Gifts and Abilities. Matthew twenty five, fifteen says, To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability. The main message here is that each one of his servants was gifted differently. I mean, look at as they had different size ministries if you want. But what each one of them did was no more or less important to to, to the master than what the other one did. You Think about it. The one gifted with five talents and the one gifted with two talents came to the master with the same story, right? The progress they made was incremental based on what they had received. But he gave them the same message. He said, welcome, into the, you, 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 welcome good faithful servant, right? He said the same thing to both of them. It didn't matter the size of their impact. This topic crosses over a little bit with the wealth, wealth, wealth section, but it's a little different. When God calls us to ministry, we need to go like the good servant did and immediately multiply it. What if, and the text doesn't say this, the servant who got one talent was disgruntled because he's only getting one talent. Remember, a talent's over a million dollars. a million and a half dollars. But it's a smaller ministry, right, than the other two had. But equally important to the master, what if number three buried the, the, the money in disgust? He said, you know what? You're not going to gift me like those other guys. I'm just going to put it down there. I really would rather have a bigger ministry. I'll I'll put this aside until I get a bigger ministry, a higher profile. Jesus and um, Jesus talked about this comparison thing a lot. If you think about it, um, back when Jesus, right after he resurrected and he met with the disciples on the shore and they had breakfast together, and he asked Peter three times, you know, if he loved him, and he said, "Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep." And finally, the last time he asked him, Peter just unloaded and said, "Look, look, you know I love you. You know everything. You know, you, you know, you, you've, you know my sin. You know everything. You know I love you." And Jesus said, "All right, but you know what? Now that you know that you love me, now that you're committed, you're gonna. It's going to be hard. You know, you're going to be martyred." And he basically describes how he's going to be martyred. The first thing Peter does after he's come to this revelation, come to this point, is compare. He sees John sitting there, and he goes, "Well, what about him? Is he going to have to die too? Is he going to have to be martyred too? Is he going to suffer too?" And what does Jesus say to him? If, if I if, if I leave him right where he is till till I come back, what's that to you? You serve me. That's what Jesus says when we try to compare. Um, in second, Paul, uh, writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 10.12, says this, Not that we dare classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are um, commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. By the way, if you've never read the, the whole book of Ephesians, that is a great reading. Most of Paul's letters are written to other churches to correct something that's going wrong there. Ephesians is starting out with a new church, telling them how to build it right. how to What, what the people of the church should be like to attain the full stature of Jesus Christ. So in the Ephesians letter, Paul says in Ephesians 4, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord, uh, starting in verse um. One, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of spirit and a bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all through all in all. Then it says to this, but grace was given to each of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Our gifts are not going to be all the same. And then on verse 11, he starts talking about why. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry and building up the body of Christ, until we attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature and the fullness of Christ. See, God gave you the exact same set of gifts that you can handle, and will be effective for your part in building up the body. God has equipped you uniquely to build up the body as only you can. So which gifts are most important? Why would we desire someone else's gifts and talents? You ever try to achieve a gift that isn't clearly yours? I used to wish I could be musical. I still do, but I used to too. <laughs> but... um and, and I, it's been proven by, and because every of you have witnessed, that I cannot reproduce music in instrument or voice. Um, uh, the instrument's no one's fault. My parents spent thousands of dollars on guitar lessons um, over the years, and all I could do was play one note at a time when I saw it on the on the sheet. You know, I could never make music on a on a guitar. And it's years of trying. T- several teachers retired because of me, probably. When I moved to Missouri, I grew up back east. When I moved to Missouri, I thought if I learned to play the banjo, I would be invited out a lot. But um, So I went the same thing. I, I paid for my own lessons and tried to learn the banjo and never got that. I could play notes when I saw them on a page, but I couldn't play the banjo. The voice I blame on my late mother. Um, um, the voice I never learned to sing, I blame that on my late mother. Our, uh, the car that I remember dri- her driving us to work to school in was a 68 Buick Sabre. We got it brand new. And it had an eight-track tape player in here. Now I know this crowd knows there's a fair number. You know what an eight-track tape player was? My mother thought that was the greatest thing on earth because it didn't fade when you went under a bridge, you know, and there were no commercials, right? And so it just switched channels once in a while. But the, the eight-track she played to every practice I ever drove to, every school trip activity I ever went to, every trip to my grandmother's we ever went to was the Tijuana Brass. Do you realize how much singing's on the Tijuana Brass? None of her kids can sing, but we can all make the trumpet noise, you know. So, Darla talked about the hymn singing, the parts, and learning the parts. If you want to learn this, sit by Willard. If you want to learn this, if you want to learn this, lip sync, sit by me. (laughs) Okay. So, um, it's not that people haven't tried. Calvin tried to teach me four-part harmony in camp, and uh, um, one of um, this was one of our early years where uh, he had uh, Dale Bench, Chris Meeks. Daniel, Yoder, and me, and try and teach us four-part harmony so we could do And he looks at me and he goes, man, you've got pipes, but I think you're tone deaf. <laughs> God bless you, I think you're tone deaf were his words, actually. So, <laughs> Have you thought about how God's gifted you uniquely? Are you still chasing gifts that aren't yours? How about your calling, your ministry, your church? We aren't supposed to hide them. We're not supposed to sit on them. We darn sure shouldn't compare, so what do we do? My sermon title says we're called to make the most of them. To make the most of them, we have to move forward with a heart that we don't deserve it. It's not ours. If we didn't have it, we would still love God and seek His presence. The results are, we're too grateful to compare. We'll start seeking God's presence through the person of Jesus Christ, not just after what He can do for us or give us. We get closer to Jesus when we're operating in our areas of blessing and pointing others to His kingdom through those areas. But how do we get started? I mean, we've been comparing our whole lives, right? We're bombarded every day with media that tells us our cars, our bodies, our spouses, our vacations, our houses, our furniture, our diet, they're not good enough, right? Better homes and gardens. Better than what? Better than yours, right? We even hear from a lot of pulpits how our giving life, our prayer life, our dedication is not as good as fill in the blank. So what do we do? As I was studying, the best response for what we're given or blessed with is... I was led to the self-led short uh, short course in biblical Hebrew sacrifice. And it's it's too deep to go into completely, but remember that Hebrew sacrifice was not a random ritual. Every aspect of it, as we talked about earlier, points to the coming Messiah and what He expects our position to be on the talents that we've been given, that He's blessed us with. People commonly understand sacrifice to involves some kind of loss, usually giving something up, right? He sacrificed for the team. They sacrificed to make the Olympics their whole life, to make the Olympics, or whatever it is, for the greater good, for the sake of the good. However, in the case of the ancient Israelite practice, we commonly refer to as sacrifice. It's better to think of it as a giving over rather than a giving up completely. Atoning sacrifice was a little different. Um, sacrifice comes from the Latin word "sacrificare," and "sacrificare" means to make sacred. Okay, so keep that in mind. The atoning sacrifice we talked about for before, where the perfect lamb or whatever it was was sacrificed to atone for sin regularly, was different than what I'm going to talk about right now. Um, but. What the sacrifice of a blessing means to permanently transfer it from the human realm to the heavenly realm. You take something that God has blessed you with, the first fruits of your crop, the first fruits of your livestock, and and bring it forth and and offer it, and take it from detach it from the earth and, and offer it up to the heavenly. The Hebrew noun term for the sacrifice is called korban, q u q o r b a n. It's something brought forward or offered. When they performed sacrifices, the ancient Israelites, ancient Israelites gave over to God some of what they believed God had given them. And it was either pigeons or grain or new wine or, or, or fruit or, or lamb. And they respected their close relationship to God and they're hoping to deepen that bond. And in the Hebrew Torah, sacrifice always involves transformation. The only way to transform form something as a sacrifice is to destroy it. They bind it to the altar, it talks about in Psalms, pour it out as a grain or liquid, and then light it on fire. And then in Leviticus, I just finished a Bible study on Leviticus, and then it ends with Hebrews, and I'll tell you about why in a minute. But you light it on fire, and it raises that that sacrifice up, it transforms it from earthly to heavenly, makes it before God as a, as a, a sacrifice. The destruction removes the sacrifice from the ordinary realm and makes it into a transcendent one. Leviticus tells us that what God received from the sacrifice was a smoke of the burning as a pleasing aroma. The New Testament's full of symbolism on this. The woman poured precious uh, nard over Jesus, and and that that was raised up as a sacrifice. And she She was blessing Jesus and raising that up. By receiving the smoke, the transformed sacrifice, God enjoyed fellowship with His human beings. It bound us. So, let's go back to our parable real quick. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered me five talents here. I have made you five talents more. And his master said to him, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master's kingdom. The one with the two talents got the same words back. But listen to the, the, the uh Servant number three, if you will, the one talent man. He who had received one talent came forward saying, I knew you were a hard man. He he, he didn't talk about the talent at all or what he did. He focused right back on the master, right? He said, I do, I knew you were a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathered where you uh, gathering where you scattered no seed, so I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. See, this his heart wasn't to serve the master, it was to avoid him in a sense. He didn't see the talent as his master's gift to use and bring forward. He saw it as a burden to bury. Right? I want to get rid of this. I don't want to be tied to this because the master expects too much of me. If we get less than God wants us to have, we'll falsely accuse him, as the servant falsely accused his master when he said, you expect more of me than you gave me power to do. You demand too much of me for how little you bless me. When it's a question of God's almighty spirit, never say I can't. Never allow a limitation of your own ability enter into the matter. If we have received the Holy Spirit, God expects the work of the Holy Spirit to be exhibited in us, no matter what our gifts are. And we've been falsely accusing God of daring to worry when He said, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So how do we know, you know... um, And then he says, cast them into the, cast them where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I I don't want this to be taken as a losing your salvation thing or anything like that. It's choosing to live outside the kingdom. It's choosing to take your blessings outside the kingdom. And if you don't want the kingdom, you don't want God. If you don't want the master, you don't want the kingdom. How do we know if we want the master? Later in the same parable, Jesus is speaking. Um, later in the same chapter, Jesus is speaking about what's going to happen, and he says, "When the Son of Man comes into his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Behold, for him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate the people from one another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll say to one, You know, you, you, you gave me drink, you, you clothed me, you, you offered me a place to be, you, you fellowshiped with me.'" And they'll say, hey, come on into my kingdom. And they'll say, when did we do that? And he said, when you did it to the least of my, least of these. And they said, and the ones that he rejects will say, the goats, he'll, he'll say, you, you know, I was hungry, you didn't feed me. I was naked, you didn't clothe me. I was lost and you didn't show, show me the way, right? And they'll say, when did we do that? And he says, when you've avoided to do it to the least of these, you do it to me. If you're using his gifts as blessings to serve others in this kingdom, you're offering them up. So clearly we need to take what God is blessed with and sacrifice and lay lay it give it over to be transformed to the sacred. How do we do this? How does this offering up look like? Our jobs, our family, this church, our gifts, our abilities, what does it look like? It seems to me this can only happen now in the altar of prayer. I don't want you guys chopping up your church or burning your church to offer it up as a sacrifice or your Bibles. Um, You know, and honestly, most of my life, I've not put prayer in the right place. I've not had prayer be that powerful of a presence before God offering up what He's given me as a sacrifice. I hear a sermon like this and start reading books on prayer, listening to teachings on prayer. And my prayer life's come a long ways, but Isaiah 40:26 says that 26 says this. Isaiah 40:26. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these things. He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by greatness of his might and by because he is strong in power, not one is missing. See, the people in God's Isaiah's time couldn't see God because they they were hung up on idols. But, God made, but Isaiah made them look up to the heavens. That is, he made them beginning to use their power to picture correctly. I'm going to give you a quick parable here. Dave Cook, This isn't a parable, this is a historical fact. Um, Alice and I were on the plaza this last fall, and we had dinner with another family on Sunday afternoon, and uh, then we were heading back to our car. And this homeless couple met us, and uh, they, they came they were homeless, but they needed money for rent, which didn't add up, but they were cl- truly needy. Um, and they were both talking different stories, and they were very aggressive in the way they had approached us. Not physically, or they didn't threaten us or anything, but they were very um, demanding. And I gave them some money, um, it wasn't a dollar, and it wasn't a hundred dollars, but let's just say it was a weak tithe of our dinner bill, or something like that. The woman kept stating their troubles over and over again, you know, she kept saying, and they they, they kind of grew in magnitude. Right, and um, they grew as she spoke. They, they had the kid, number of kids they had to feed was getting was multiplying. Uh, the man broke into an auction. He said, "Put another twenty with it. Put another twenty with it." He started auctioning with me, and he and when when I wasn't I I didn't meet I wasn't bidden enough, so he went over to Allison. He went back and forth, and as and uh, he said, "Put another twenty with it. Put another twenty with it." And I clearly had not met the goal of the capital campaign, but he told me what the goal of the capital campaign was. It was eighty dollars a day. Okay, so so he, he stated that. He was telling me what my gift, my blessing to him should be. I walked away angry. And this went through my head. He didn't earn that. He didn't even, he didn't provide me with anything. He didn't do anything for me. He doesn't know me. He doesn't really want to know me. He didn't ask for my guidance. He just wanted all he could get from me. I just gave it to him. No strings attached. Who is he to say it's not enough? His heart, if his heart was right, he would have gave 10% back to me and to give to somebody else. Right? What am I, some kind of ATM? Then I started playing in my mind a mental recording of my recent prayers to God. What do you think I heard? I'm not saying you have to empty your wallet to every homeless person you encounter, but please hear this. God will put in your past some sorry people that remind you of how you have been to Him. Philippians 3:23 3, 3 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I can't get out away from this pouring out concept. It's so against my nature. <laughs> um I read Oswald Chambers my utmost for his every day. I've done it for 5 years. I think I have really poor retention because I read it every year like it's new. Um and so um but he's got a lot of stuff in it his, in his, so I want to close with um one of his uh, writings. Uh, it's from February 6th, and this one literally haunts me. And it's called, Are You Ready to Be Poured Out as an Offering? I am ready to be poured out as a drink offering. Second Timothy 4.6, the words of Paul. Are you ready to be poured out as an offering? It's an act of your will, not your emotions. Tell God you are ready to be offered as a sacrifice to Him. Then accept the consequences as they come without any complaints, in spite of what God may send your way. God sends you through a crisis in private where no other person can help you. From the outside, your life may appear to be the same, but the difference is taking place in your will. Once you have experienced the crisis in your will, you will take no thought of the cost when it begins to affect you externally. If you don't deal with God on the level of your will first, then the result will only arouse sympathy for yourself. Bind the sacrifice to the cords of the altar. Psalm 118.27 You must be willing to be placed on the altar and go through the fire, willing to experience what the altar represents. Burning, purification, separation, for only one purpose. The elimination of every desire and affection not grounded in or directed toward God. But you don't eliminate it. God does. You bind the sacrifice to the horns of the altar and see that you don't wallow in self-pity once the fire begins. After you've gone through the fire there will be nothing that will be able to trouble or depress you. When another crisis arises, you realize that things cannot touch you as they used to. What fire lies ahead in your life? Tell God you're ready to be poured out as an offering, and God will prove Himself to be all you ever dreamed He would be. I can't pray this prayer for you, but I'd love to lead you in prayer if you join me now. As I do, picture every element of your life being bound to the altar, set apart. Its earthly attachment destroyed by fire and the smoke rising up before the throne. God breathing it in as it's transformed from earthly to godly as we pray. Holy God, we come before you today in the spirit of sacrifice. Because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we can come directly to you in the altar of our church, our prayer room, or the altar of our heart. Praise God, the cross nor the empty tomb were not the end. We Or even the climax. Because Jesus was obedient to the point of death on the cross, you exalted him to the highest place at the right hand of God as proof of your acceptance of his payment for our sins. Now all the blessings we enjoy come from you and are to equip us to further your kingdom. Now through your Holy Spirit, indwell in us and empower our church. Give us strength to bind these things, pour them out, set them apart on your altar and bring them forth as an offering to you. Asking you to sanctify them and make them holy, destroying what we have made of them. These blessings from you we bring forth now. Our bodies, our gifts and abilities, our church, our jobs, our schooling, our family, our relationships, our wealth, our ministries, our praise and worship, our Bible study and quiet time. Lastly, Lord God, let our prayer life be truly a time of intensity that drains our energy and breaks us free from the poison of self-service and comparison. Let us, as we come to your altar, yield up every gift you've given us and declare, it's yours, God. Use it to further your kingdom in whatever way you choose. Lord, help us to seek you in prayer instead of what you can do for us. Lord, in all these things, help us through focused prayer to seek to know you more each day until the day comes when you draw the earth completely into the glory of your kingdom when we see you as you are, and ourselves as you created us to be. It's in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.